again. What a sweet time of worship. Every Sunday, I hope you know how blessed we are as a congregation to gather in this place to celebrate his name. I hope you're not here just to receive something out of Sunday. I hope you will continue to learn how to give yourself away to the Lord, surrender to his will, his way. We're in the end of a series. I almost wore a hazmat suit to wrap things up this morning, but it's too hot. The end of a series that we've entitled Soul Detox. And we've spent some time uh, revolving around some specifics of Scripture, specifically starting in Genesis chapter 2, where God gives man, Adam, the breath of life. Good. Look, look with me at Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 again. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. We are not bodies with a soul to minimize the soul. We are instead souls. You are a soul with a body. Today I want to talk about, I want to admit in this wrap-up way, this wrap-up message, this fourth Sunday of this idea of a soul detox. I, I, I want to put in front of us the reality that we are collectively prone to attention deficit disorder. <laughs> you guys think it's just me. It's us. We're distracted people. We are people that are prone to keeping our focus on one thing for a season and moving along. We are quickly, spiritually speaking, to turn from God and be seduced by the things of this world. This morning, we need to admit, we are seduced souls. Being seduced isn't something that's only been experienced the last few generations of, of men and women. It's not something new simply because there's more stuff, more uh, involvement in this world. It's not simply that there's uh, the internet, not just on our doorsteps, but in our homes, in our rooms. It's not just that we have uh, cell phones or unlimited channels on our satellite television. We are not seduced because of uh, anything new under the sun. We are prone. We have a, a, a bent as human beings to be distracted and give our attention in places where it shouldn't be. This morning, let's admit, let's, let's start there with, with understanding that we are distracted people. We are prone to wander. We are prone to be distracted by the things of this world. Seduction for our souls in our souls began in the Garden of Eden 
with Adam and Eve, and it continues to this day, God addresses this tendency uh, very early in Scripture, the reminder as he lays out his commands for humanity, those uh, who would be marked by his name, those who would uh, follow in his way. Maybe like me, you, you learn to memorize the Ten Commandments. Let's turn to them. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 6, give us the first two commandments. And herein lies the reality that God knows about us as human beings. Look at Genesis chapter 20, verses 1 through 6 with me this morning. Then God gave the people all these instructions. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. Verse 3, you must not have any other God but me. Verse 4, you must not make for yourself any idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But, verse 6, I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, would you speak? Would your spirit do a work? Would you open pathways into our hearts and souls this morning and remind us of your timeless truth. Convict our hearts, I pray. Unite us together in pursuit of you. We give you our attention again today in Jesus' name. Amen. Here in Exodus chapter 20, first two commands are outlined. Maybe you memorized them. Maybe they were uh, printed on, on something in your home. Maybe, uh, like me, you grew up in a Sunday school generation where you, you memorized these for the gift of a $10 bill. If you could memorize them, that was pretty cool growing up. Ten bucks to memorize the Ten Commandments. Quickly found out it was a lot easier to memorize things when there was money involved. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number two, you shall have no other idols. You must not bow down and worship any other thing than me. It's obvious, I believe, that God is setting up his law to protect our souls, to put a, a roadblock in the place because of the seductions of this world that all of us as human beings are so prone to be entangled with. We are prone to distraction. Why would God ask us not to put anything else in front of him? The why is clear. Verse 5, God says, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other God. God is jealous. Jealousy doesn't work really well in our culture today, right? It, it doesn't have very positive connotations. When, when, when we talk about someone being jealous of someone else, it's usually not in the context of it being a positive, right? But doesn't it make sense that the one who created all things, 
the creator of the universe, the one who started this whole thing, the one who breathed the life into you and to me, the one who gives us everything we have, the one who owns it all, the one who is the beginning and the end. He is the Alpha, the Omega. He is God. He is the I Am. Doesn't it make sense to know that he says nothing else can be in front. Nothing else can be at the center. Nothing else can take priority. Nothing else can take your time, your energy. Nothing else. Nothing else. No one else can take his place. God says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other. The giver of life demands our full attention. He does not, he is not satisfied with weekend custody. Church, he's not satisfied with us showing up and checking in and checking back out. He demands our full attention. He demands 100%, all in, everything, every moment is his. In the book of Deuteronomy, there's further detail of the dangers of this seduction by idol. I want to look at Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 16 to 19, says this, so do not corrupt yourselves by making an idol in any form, whether of a man or a woman, an animal on the ground, a bird in the sky, a, a small animal that scurries along the ground. Squirrel! <laughs> or a fish in the deepest sea. When you look up into the sky and see the sun, moon, and stars, all the forces of heaven, don't be seduced into worshiping them. The Lord your God gave them to all the peoples of the earth. God demands, don't be seduced. Don't be distracted. Don't give your attention to anything else besides me. Find it interesting, comical even, but give me a second. Remember the movie Up? Beautiful Disney animation movie. Animals that shouldn't be able to talk can talk. It's an animation. It's not real, as far as I can tell. There's a dog in the movie, multiple dogs that can speak. And it's so funny how the dogs in the movie are distracted by a would-be squirrel. And they address each other as such. They have the conversations. They're having conversations with each other and with other humans, and then they instantly say, Squirrel! Isn't it interesting? Deuteronomy chapter 6 points out, we're distracted by the same things. Don't make idols, even for animals that scurry along the ground. 
The danger of soul seduction is real. You and I maybe sometimes try and hide from the truth of being seduced by the things of this world, but can we admit, can we start at this point where we admit together that the world is in hot pursuit, the world is in seduction mode, the world would do anything it can to draw our souls to itself. The enemy who prowls around like a, a, a roaring lion, would do nothing less. He would like nothing more than to distract us, even a little bit, to cause us to put anything higher than, slightly higher than, our pursuit of our relationship with Jesus Christ. The enemy doesn't have to do much, we could admit. In 2018, October, 14th, when so much of our culture, so much around us, is so easily distracting. So this morning, let's look. Sunday mornings are a great opportunity for us to talk practically, uh, for us to, to, to learn together. How, how is it? If we can admit that there are idols in our life, if there are distractions, if there are things that are taking uh, an elevated platform to our relationship with Jesus Christ, let's, let's look at how we can fix that. Uh, let's admit that there's some work to do in our lives, and let's learn to do it together. Uh, look around you for a second. I want you to know, if you're here this morning, you're on a team. You're on a team of people committed to doing life together. And if we start at this point where we admit that we're distracted, that we are prone to distraction, that this is a part of our human bent, we also can admit this morning that there's a way out of that. Let's start with step one. How do we dethrone idols in our souls? First, let's identify those idols. Does that make sense? Let's identify those idols. Let's call them what they are. That's the first step of every 12-step program. You've heard this again and again. The, the, the step to get fixed, the, the step to fix a problem is first to admit that there's a problem. Right? This is a, a war, war 101. How can we do war with the enemy? We have to first of all know who the enemy is. Right? I, I think often we need to force ourselves to take a step back in our life and identify you know, what those things are, what those idols are in our lives. We, we need to give these things names. We need to identify them. We need to point them out. This goes back to last week's message and the, the importance in the Christian life of, of being confessional. Uh, finding opportunities to pour ourselves out before God. It doesn't clue God into what the idols are in our lives. He knows them. What it does for us is it names things as they are. It points out the reality that we are distracted people. Uh, we have put things in place before God. We shouldn't be proud of it, but we must admit it. We need to identify those things we've put in front of God. We cannot do battle with those things unless we've called them like they are. Anything, anything that would take precedence over our relationship with the Lord has the potential of being an idol. If you've grown up in church, you know the, the, the typical ones, the obvious ones. They're time, money, relationships, technology. We don't necessarily uh, build idols of, of gold and silver 
anymore. We don't necessarily put those in our house and spend time uh, bowing before them, but we do that same thing with many of the things we've bought into from this world. Time, money, possessions, relationships. There's some uh, not so obvious, there's some, some subtle ones, the things we spend our time uh, uh, doing, hobbies, conversations, e even things like uh, the, the, the media we are taking in. We don't like to admit it. Maybe we say, uh, I don't watch as much Netflix as someone else, but we can allow something even as seemingly innocent as time spent on a computer, time spent in front of a screen, time spent next Netflix and chilling can become an idol for each of us. I think it's important to note that none of these things in and of themselves is an instant idol. You heard it said, and maybe you've said it to someone who's struggling through a season of uh, focusing their attention on finances. We've misquoted scripture in saying that money is the root of all evil. Therefore, our pastor better not preach about it. Do you know where that's wrong? That statement is wrong? Scripture. We, we, we try to say things like that, and then we say, Scripture says money is the root of all evil. What's interesting when we say stuff like that is when we actually look at what Scripture says. Scripture says the love, right? Some of you know? The love of money. What does that mean? The love of money. Uh, when we put money and possessions and things in front of our relationship, but when we love them more than God, when our pursuits are on those things of this world, when we place them uh, in a different way than our relationship with the Lord, when we put them above our love and devotion and our desire to be in the presence of God, Oh, how quick they are to make idols. None of these things by themselves is an idol. It's when we begin to worship it. It, it, it. It's when things transform over from looking at something and thinking it's nice to spending too much time focused on it or allowing it to be at the, the center of our life instead of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what? Is it good enough for us to identify the idols in our life? I, I, I think this is kind of uh, one of the things that happens as we grow up in the church. We, we've heard a message like this that says, hey, we need to identify those idols. We need to put labels on things. We need to uh, get out our, our, our label printer and walk around our house and uh, start showing ourselves, writing things down and saying, this is an area of struggle in my life. This is something in my life that has taken more time and energy and money and resources from me than my relationship with the Lord, than my pursuit of becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. This is an idol for me. And we write our lists and we label our things and we think, ah, yep, got a house full of idols. If we just label things idols, if we just point them out, if we just put them on a list, if we just admit, if we just confess, and we go back to business as normal, have we really done anything? Second step of dethroning idols 
is to smash those things. We've got to tear them down. We have to tear down our idols. If we stop with simply identifying those things, the, uh, we've missed out on what God wants to do. The next logical step for us is to remove them, to tear them down. Sometimes this requires doing uh, without certain things. We, we, we have to remove things from our life. I think all of us have heard stories of people, crazy people, right? We say this, crazy people who have done things like unplugged their television for seasons of time. Can you imagine unplugging our televisions? Can you imagine not renewing our cable bill? <gasps> Can you imagine? It's unfortunate. It's unfortunate that I have to admit that the testimonies that I grew up with of people who acknowledged idols and removed them from their life like that seem to be so much fewer. So many of the idols they're so obviously idols in many of our lives. We think we can't live without them. Well, I don't have the cable package that my neighbor has. My satellite dish is just a little smaller than his. Good. If it's an idol, it's got to be removed. In the Old Testament, it's a fanciful reality as you read through the Old Testament of battles happening. There's some incredible things story-wise outlined throughout the Old Testament. And as you read it, there's often a, a tradition that as God sends in his armies into communities, cities, entire countries are wiped out. And one of the requirements God often makes is to tear down all the altars and idols of another people group. Why? He's a jealous God. He's the only one worthy of our praise, attention, our adoration, our all in. No one else, nothing else can satisfy. In Judges chapter 6, we uh, read the account of Gideon in chapter 6. It's a beautiful uh, interaction, a beautiful storyline of Gideon interacting uh, with an angel of the Lord. And this angel of the Lord, uh, God actually speaks through uh, this, this passage of Scripture. And in verses 25 and 26, the Lord commands Gideon to tear down some idols. Look at this. Verse 25, that night the Lord said to Gideon, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one that's seven years old. Pull down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole, this idol standing beside it. Then build an altar to the Lord your God here on this hilltop sanctuary, laying these stones carefully and sacrifice the bull as a burnt offering on the altar, using as fuel the wood of that altar, the Asherah pole you cut down, that idol. I, I, I like this story. It's a reality that Gideon was facing this, uh, living through a vicious cycle of generational idol worship. Literally, for generations, his entire family's collective soul and the collective souls of all the Israelites were seduced uh, again and again by idols. They found themselves worshiping other gods so very easily. As we read through the Old Testament here uh, today, we often uh, look at passages like this and we're like, why were they so prone to being distracted? And then we turn on our TVs. 
Right? Why? Why couldn't they see? They had the very presence, the very presence of God in their midst. They had an intimate relationship with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Moses was only gone up on the mountain for a short while, and they wanted something. They wanted something to focus their attention on. We, we laugh at them. Oh boy. If the Israelites could see us. And maybe it's not golden calves. Maybe we don't collect our earrings and melt them down to fashion for ourselves things that sparkle. I can't tell you the last time I saw a, an idol fashioned in the shape of a squirrel. But we Christians are so prone to worshiping things that are not our God. The story continues in Judges chapter 6 that Gideon followed the Lord's direction. He demolished the idols in the middle of the night and chose instead to worship God alone. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful reminder that Idols needed to be identified and smashed. In the New Testament, maybe one of the most famous examples of the need to tear down idols comes uh, when Jesus interacts with the person we know as the rich young ruler. Mark 10 gives us this passage. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 23. says this, As Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, man comes up, running to him, kneels down, says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds to him in just likely fashion. In verse 19, he says, You must not murder, must not commit adultery, must not steal, you must not testify falsely, you must not cheat anyone, you must honor your father and mother. Verse 20, rich young ruler tightens up his tie. <laughs> Got it. He says he's done all these things since he was a boy. He's, he's a pro. Nailed it. Check, check, check. I do all these things, teacher. I'm in. Verse 21, looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. Jesus says, there's another idol in your life. Still one thing you haven't done. Go sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then... After you've torn down this idol, after you've identified it, after you know it, after you've humbled yourself and acknowledged that this thing is the center of your worship and your attention, then come follow me. Verse 22 isn't easy to read. The biblical account says this, at this the man's face fell. He went away sad, for he had many possessions. Jesus looked around, shrugs, and we add that, Jesus looked around and says to his disciples how hard it is for idol worshipers, for distracted people, for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. I, I think this passage of Scripture becomes more difficult for me even as, as years progress in my own life. 
I'm reminded as we read an account like this, that this is not one of Jesus' talking parables. This is not Jesus telling a story that has a deep meaning. This is an actual interaction. The rich young ruler is not just some made-up fictional character. This is a real instance where Jesus is meeting another human being on the road, and they want to know what it takes to inherit eternal life. They want to know how can they receive what Jesus is teaching about, what must they do? And they begin to check things off like, yes, 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 I've done all these things, and this real interaction between this real human being and Jesus ends with the man's face falling because he knows this thing, this thing that he's built his life around, this richness, this wealth, is not something he's willing to give up. He admits that this monetary idol is too important to him, too important to remove in order to follow Jesus. Too important for him to remove, to receive the gift of eternal life. Jesus asks two chapters earlier in Mark chapter 8, verse 36, what do you benefit? Can I paraphrase it for us? Can I work some, some words in here? What do you benefit? Here's what Jesus says. What do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Jesus is saying, what do you benefit if you give your attention to the things of this world? What do you do? What do you benefit if you gain the temporary satisfaction of worshiping what this world worships, but you lose what matters? Your soul. The idols in our lives must be torn down. We can't just identify them. It's not good enough. We've got to demolish them. We've got to break them. We've got to remove some stuff from our life. Not easy to say amen for hard truth like this. We're human beings, right? So uh, we remove things from our life. <laughs> what often happens? You ever had a yard sale? You ever done spring cleaning? Made the garbage men pretty happy with all the treasures you've left them? Do you know what I'm talking about? You ever take stock of the stuff you own? You ever walk through your house and go, why are we still, why, why, maybe it's like this, why do you still have that? It's still in a box? Maybe. True confession, you stand in your shop, your garage, you look around and you're like, oh, I just didn't have that, that, that. I would have room for that. Whatever that is. Isn't that just like us as humans? Don't we wish, <laughs> don't we wish we had less stuff so we could have more stuff. How often in our conversations we, th we say things, I wish I had more time for. Wish I had more time for. The next thing. Wish I had more room. Step three. 
It's not good enough to just identify our idols. It's not good enough just to tear them down. We, we can't afford to fill them up with more idols. We've got to replace our idols with more, more of God. The truth is, if we identify our idols and tear them down, it is not long. It's not long before something else creeps in to replace that torn down idol. If we're not aware, ready, and willing to replace it with more of God. How do we replace it with more of God? We've got to be hungry. Hungry for the right things. We've got to put some roadblocks in our life. We've got to stop believing the commercials. That if you just had this thing and paid 16 easy payments of $497, you'll be happy. Stop believing the hype that this life is all about the stuff. <laughs> Start believing that God is truly the center, the most important thing. We need to be hungry for a deeper relationship with the Lord, and we can pray for that. We can humble ourselves every day. When we get weary of praying for a hunger, we can uh, read the Psalms and allow those, uh, that language, that, that word, God's word, God's active and living word to be uh, our prayer. One of the best places to read about hunger for the things of God is from the book of Psalms. We write songs about it. Maybe sing those songs. Listen to Psalm 84, verse 2. I long, yes, I faint with longing to enter the courts, the presence of the Lord. With my whole being, body, and soul, I will shout joyfully to the living God. Do you hear something in there that's kind of foreign to our understanding, except when we're singing it on a Sunday, when we think we are in the presence of God? It's not a Sunday morning psalm. It's a life expression, a, a longing, a fainting for an opportunity even just to be in the presence of God. That's a true deep desire. That's a knowledge that there's a distraction in life and a, a desire to replace those, to, de to destroy them and replace them with more of God. That's hunger. If we're not careful, our tendency is to live out a vicious cycle of replacing idols with idols if we don't get this step right. We must, as Christians, fill the void left by demolished idols, the things we get rid of, the things that have taken our attention, the things that we focused on, the things that we are proud of, the things that others know about us when we remove those things when we identify them as idols and we're willing to remove them from our lives we must fill them with the only true source of fulfillment another psalm psalm 107 verse 9 from the english standard version for he god satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things fulfillment doesn't come from this world it's all temporary it's all plastic we don't make things like we used to right we know stuff doesn't last the things we put our stock and our time and our efforts into in this world 
are just that, things of this world. Things aren't idols. The next thing you order on Amazon isn't an idol when it shows up at your house. It is when it becomes the center of your attention. When it replaces your desire for more of the Lord. When it tries to fill a gap that can only be filled with the presence of God Almighty. Would you bow your heads with me? In closing, I want to ask, what are those idols of your soul that you need to tear down? In the stillness of this moment, I would encourage you to ask God to reveal to you what they are, to identify them by name in your heart. And then I want to ask you, what step are you going to take What step do you need to take this morning to fill your soul with more of God? What distractions are you prone to? What squirrel idols exist in your life? And how will you choose to identify them, tear them down, and fill them with more of God? Another practical step. For centuries, Christians have remembered the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ through the sacrament of communion. We're reminded in moments like this that Jesus is truly our satisfaction. He truly is our all in all. He truly is at the center. And so, I'm just going to ask that we be quiet for a moment. I'm going to read a passage of Scripture. And then I'm going to give you a charge, church. And if you accept that charge, if it rings true in your heart, you are invited to end this service in the presence of God through the sacrament of communion. Hear God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took some bread. He gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this. Eat this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. Scripture continues, For every time we eat this bread and drink this cup, we announce the Lord's death until he comes. So any who eats this bread or drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. This is why, verse 28, 1 Corinthians, this is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat or drink 
without honoring the body of Christ, you eat and drink God's judgment upon yourself. Here is your charge, Hyde Wesleyan Church. You were walking in fellowship with Christ and are in love and harmony with your neighbor. You who do truly and earnestly repent to this day of sin and intend to continually be transformed, to be made new, draw near to the table of grace by faith today through the holy sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Would you search your hearts for a few moments?